You must read hundreds of scripts a week. I don't know about a week, but <laughs> definitely... <laughs> my average is about five to 600 a year. Wow. Uh, That's a lot of time to cut out of your day to read scripts. Yeah, and, and typically it happens late at night when I'm not, as it were, in the office working. But, of course, I'm working all the time, yeah. like most of us are. Welcome again to another edition of Booth One, where we celebrate the art of lively conversation and take a close look at the cultural fabric in and around Chicago and the country as a whole. Gary Zabinski here, flying solo as your host today, coming off a splendid episode 55 with co-host Paul Strolley. I am so pleased to have as my guest today one of the preeminent theater artists in America, longtime artistic director of Chicago's famed Court Theater on the University of Chicago campus in Hyde Park, Mr. Charles Newell. Welcome, Charles. Thank you so much for having me. Would you mind if I call you Charlie, as so many people do? Uh, please do. I might not know who you mean if you said Charles. <laughs> <laughs> Does your mother call you Charles? No, when she was mad at me, she would call me Charles Peter. So that's when I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> I was always Gary Michael. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's the same thing. Exactly. Now, you've been the artistic director at Court now since 1993. Could that be possible? Is it 23 years now? It, that That's pretty close. I My wife and I moved here to Chicago, uh, and I was offered the associate position. Founding artist director Nick Ruddle was at the time the artistic director, and then a year later I was offered the artistic director job. Yeah. Now, you grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. I did indeed. Were you a fan or a goer to Arena Stage? Is that where you got your yes, it was love of theater? Exactly. It was my home theater. I My mother took me to many different kinds of theater, bless her. But the most transformational moment was when she took me to see a production of Death of a Salesman, starring uh, the great actor Robert Prosky, uh-huh. uh, directed by Zel- the great Zelda Fitchhandler. And at the end, when Linda's at the gravesite and weeping, I t- found myself weeping and I thought, and you have to understand, I was seven, eight, nine, ten, something like that at the time. I was like, what is this? <laughs> that I could have such a strong emotional response to it. So it was really then when I thought, uh, I want to I get closer to all of that. Yeah. And uh, where, where did you go to study theater in, in college? Were you at Wesleyan University? I was. Like many of us in the theater, I had transformational mentors, actually starting in seventh grade in high school. A gentleman by the name of Ted Walsh, who's still a very close friend. He runs the theater program now out at Harvard-Westlake in Los Angeles. It's actually where I met uh, for the first time my my wife-to-be. And then when I went to West University, an extraordinary man named William Francisco was my primary directing mentor. And then after that, for eight years, I toured the country going to the Guthrie and Arena Stage and various other theaters seeking out great classical theater directors to learn from them. So essentially, I I didn't go to graduate school. I instead had an apprenticeship for about six to eight years. What's the uh, best or greatest piece of advice one of your mentors or directing (laughs) teachers ever gave you? It's a great question that I love to answer. The late, great Garland Wright, former artistic director of the Guthrie Theater, he and I have had a long uh, relationship over many years. But at one early moment, he said, Charlie, if you ever truly want to become a good director, you have to commit your life to a never-ending journey about learning about actors' process. And I thought about that, and I thought, 
you mean it never ends? And he said, yes. I said, well, then sign me up, because the idea that I could pursue a career and a life in making art and yet never know enough and always be learning more was the best advice. And uh, frankly, given the extraordinary opportunities that I had by mentors, an extraordinary list that included John Hausman and Alan Schneider and some amazing amazing people, I take very seriously now being in the position that I am to create similar opportunities for aspiring and emerging directors, and I always pass on that piece of advice. That's a great piece of advice, (laughs) and I assume that you found it to be true in life, that you're still in the process of learning every day. Completely. I mean, Sean Cross, the star of the lead actress on The Hard Problem, she and I have done a number of shows together, and so you'd think we know each other well and we know each other's process, but I learned so much from her in doing this play in a way that I never expected, and we can go into some detail about that if you like, but as an example, of course, you work with somebody new to you, you you learn new things because of what they need and what help works for them. Even with actors who I've done many shows with, every time I work with them, I learn something new. Let's talk about the hard problem for a few minutes. As you mentioned, uh, it was the most recent play on stage at the court, a Tom Stoppard play. And you're somewhat of an aficionado of Stoppard's works. You've done a number of them now over the years, haven't you? Rock and roll at the Goodman? For whatever reasons, I clicked aesthetically and artistically with Tom's work very early on in my career and have had the great joy of being able to uh, direct and produce a number of his plays. The rock and roll that you mentioned at the Goodman changed or, or amplified our relationship because he was very interested in perhaps looking at rewriting some parts of the end of that play. So that then began a phone relationship between he and I, uh, specifically about the end of the text, which got pretty radically changed for that Goodman production. Building upon that, though, with the hard problem, we didn't just look at any one section or one part of the play. Mm -hmm. We talked about essentially every moment in the play because we were on the phone almost on a daily basis throughout the rehearsal process. Well, that's extraordinary. You and I have something in common. I have a Tom Stoppard connection. Back in my early years in New York as a stage manager, Uh I worked on the New York and national tours of The Real Thing, uh, the national tour with Brian Bedford, and got to spend quite a lot of time with Mr. Stoppard and uh, director Mike Nichols, and I found him to be an extraordinary individual. I think you've been quoted as saying that Tom is a, if I can call him Tom, He's a real theater person. Indeed. He loves the genre. He loves writing plays, and he doesn't want to really do anything else. This is what he loves to do. Have you found that in your conversations with him? Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the primary drivers of his interest in staying in such constant conversation throughout the rehearsal. He describes the writing of the plays as obviously a great joy. I interesting learned that for him, the most pleasure he had in writing any of his work was The Invention of Love, which sort of put him and that play in a whole other context for me. But then what, what he really is interested in is what he calls the event. In other words, you're in the rehearsal room. The actors, the director, the playwright are all working on finding out how to make animate this text on the page. And that's, wh- that's where 
his love of theater process, I sense, is the strongest, which is why we did as much as we possibly could to essentially get his voice into the rehearsal room through these phone conversations that he and I had. I always found his presence in the rehearsal room to be energizing and inspirational. Um, He was always just right in there with the actors and director and and just wanted to see how it could become a shape. What first attracted you to this play, The Hard Problem, which is his his latest play? I assume he's working on other things, Uh, but this is the one that he's uh, most recently known for. Yes, indeed. Well, let me just circle back a little bit to your previous point. What struck me in our phone conversations was Of course, there were moments when I would ask him, you know, could you explain the philosophy behind this argument or the science in this uh, uh, scene? And almost 98% of the time, it always came back to not so much the intellectual thinking or the science or whatever, but it was always about the relationships between the characters. So my my favorite one was there's a scene between Bo and Hillary where they're talking about this experiment that's based on a very famous experiment called the Milgram experiment. And Tom had written this scene where they were talking about variations on it. And frankly, we were having a hard time in rehearsal really understanding what exactly is that experiment that is a modification of this famous experiment. So I asked him about that. And he said, well, you know, actually, Charlie, I'm a little fuzzy on that myself. I said, well, but but, but how? And he said, but no, 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 you have to understand, Charlie. I didn't want the audience to have too much detail and information about the experiment because that's not what's important. I said, well, what's important? He said, well, it's the relationship that's developed between Bo and Hillary as she's interviewing Bo for this position, as she discovers Bo is one who kind of believes in good for goodness sake and how critical that is in terms of the journey of Hillary. So it was quite an illuminating moment to discover where his focus really is. Going back to your other question about the hard problem, I had the blessed opportunity after 20 years of being artistic director of the board at the, and the University of Chicago said, Charlie, we want to send you to London and pay for your expenses and have put you up in a nice hotel for a week to see theater. And I, Fantastic. We showed up in London and I knew that Tom's latest play was playing at the National Theater but it was completely sold out and there was no way I was going to be able to get in. But then I thought, well, what the heck? So I called him. He says, oh, yes, yes, I'll get you some house seats. So we were able to see the show uh, like the second to last performance. And it was then that I thought, well, of course, I was interested in doing the play because it's Tom's newest. But most especially toward the end of the play, I just burst into tears. There was so much of the play that I didn't really sense and understand because it, it was so dense, as is often the case with sort of first viewings of Stopper's work. But I knew that there was a tremendous emotional punch that the piece had on me. So I immediately said, hey, can we please produce the Chicago premiere? And he was instrumental in helping us secure the rights. Yeah, there's a real emotional strength at the core of this play. Like you, on first viewing last weekend, I didn't understand a lot of what's going (laughs) on. And in fact, that's the hard problem of watching a Stoppard play only one time. Um, You know, he sets a position, then he rebuts that position, then he refutes the rebuttal, and then he keeps adding until suddenly you're not sure where the playwright (laughs) stands. And as you have said, that is kind of his point at times. He's not interested in telling you always where he stands intellectually, but certainly emotionally. He wants to get at the core of those people. You have some quotes there from Tom. Are these things that have come up in your conversations uh, by telephone? I guess the one that was most helpful and illuminating goes to this very question about understanding or, or what might the aspirations of a Chicago premiere production be? 
as I think many of your listeners may be aware, when their play was originally produced in the spring of 2015 at the National, both the critical response and even the sort of word of mouth of, about it was, it's a very challenging play. Most critically, there was the what can often be an accusation of some of his work for people who don't know otherwise, is that this is merely talking heads of points of view, but where is the theater, where is the heart, where is the soul? Because of my own experience of seeing the play, I always believe that it's there, and also with my experience of working on other Stoppard texts, if one can find the heart of it, that the rest will fall into place. Or as a character in Hard Problem, one of my favorite lines and sort of a touchstone or watchword for me throughout the rehearsals I was struggling to learn, Hillary says, yes, uh, she explained it to me so I think I understand it, not so that I could actually explain it to anybody else. Right. And I think as an audience member, when it's working well, you feel very smart because you believe that you're understanding it. Could you actually explain it to somebody afterwards? Maybe not. But when it's working wonderfully, you understand it because you're understanding why and how people are behaving around the ideas, not so much of the ideas themselves, if that makes sense. So for me, then all of the design and all of the work and casting and preparation for the play was about how could we really find the core, the heart, the, the central emotional journey that the play is and how to bring that forward. I can cite specific examples about ways in which we attempted to do that and which were clearly not in the text and that Tom and I had conversations about well, we're going to try something, and what do you think? This lead character in the play named Hillary, yeah. uh, she has quite the emotional journey. And exactly. not only is she trying to discover a path to solving the hard problem or understanding the hard problem even. As you say, it's very difficult for yeah. me to even tell people <laughs> exactly. what this play is about. Well, I, my I, my I fear in it. interviews is that, Charlie, please explain the philosophical underpinnings of the hard problem. This is where I need my University of Chicago faculty friend who's a professor in philosophy to explain English the hard problem. <laughs> right here, we happen to have exactly. professor. It'd be great if I could just pull them out. And I, should, I must point out, what other theater in the country has the intellectual resources that Court Theater has right in its own backyard. And this play, more than any other, we engaged, I think, a total of eight different faculty members, scholars from the university, in psychology, philosophy, brain science, neuroscience, hedge funds, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, we created at Court Theater the Center for Classic Theater in residence at the university. So this is an example of how much a center of classic theater makes possible the kinds of productions that we're able to do. I'll let our listeners know that the Court Theater was established in 1955 and is the professional theater of the University of Chicago dedicated to innovation, inquiry, as you say, intellectual engagement, and community service. And it functions as the university's classic theater, and you mount productions and audience enrichment programs in collaboration with faculty. Absolutely. Uh, which is an extremely unique way to mm -hmm. produce theater. Yeah. What, for you as the artistic director, what defines a classic? Well, that, that's probably the most often question I get asked, and I have many responses, so let's, let me think about, through my Rolodex, which would be the most useful for us today. 
I believe that the hard problem will be a play that audiences will continue to be stimulated and motivated and inspired by and, and have their heart broken and sore for many years to come, even though clearly it's very much of its time and place. Stoppard wanted to write a play not only about this question of the hard problem, but also the financial crisis of 2007 and eight. And as only Tom Stoppard could do, he decided, well, rather than write two separate plays, I'll put these two ideas together and write one play. So for me, the fact that we will keep exploring and needing to return to this play, therefore, a classic is a play that needs to be done again and again and again to help not just reveal the play, but actually reveal our times to us. That's the most uh, resonant one for me right now in terms of this play. And particularly, I, I guess I would just say that maybe an example of what was on the page versus what became part of the production, and therefore this sense of how do you create the event of the theater, which Tom is so impassioned by. In the text, there's a scene where Hillary is early on with Spike, her sometime lover and kind of philosophical uh, counterpart, in which they're talking about an issue, and uh, the question of mother love comes up. And so she kind of pretends to retch into a waste paper basket, as written in the script, and then stands up or sits up with a waste paper basket on her head. In the stage directions, it's very specific that underneath, in other words, not seen by the audience, that Hillary is crying and actually bawling quite profusely. There's another scene in which she's in in Venice with her part-time lover and goes off and says, I'm going to go into the shower. And she goes off stage, as written in the stage directions, and you don't see her. Well, in both of those cases, we thought, well, if the whole point of our production is how do we get to the heart, how do we connect to Hillary's journey, how do we have that unique thing that happens in the theater of an empathetic, sympathetic response where we become Hillary, she is us, she is ours, we are her. And so we decided that we should not have her invisible in her emotional expression, but actually revealed. So uh, in the first case, we did a kind of a lighting gesture in which she was then, you could see the incredible emotional response of Sean mm-hmm. Cross as Hillary. And in the second, she walks along the back side of the stage, along the kind of benches on whatever, in a kind of a theatrical, metaphoric way, she was crying in the shower, so you got to see it as opposed to off stage. When I talked to Tom about we were going to play around with that, he said, oh, yes, you should definitely you know, try that, try that, because it's absolutely true. Or she, is, she expresses her emotion in isolation, or as his verb, which I loved, her emotions are battened down as a result of the, for many reasons, most particularly that she gave up a child at age 15. And the way that we sought to portray in the event of live theater that isolation was directly serving what Tom was after, even though it went exactly against some of the stage directions that he wrote in the play. Tell us just briefly, what exactly is the hard problem that he's referring to? (laughs) Well, again, this is where I need my philosophy professors and science uh, professors, but essentially it's a question of, is there any difference between our brain, the gray matter, and our mind, that thing that we all experience. Namely, you know, as you're listening to this, you're also thinking to yourself, hey, I'm learning more about this podcast, or I got to put down something in my grocery list. The movie that's going on in your brain, or in your mind, I should say, as opposed to what ha- the neurological, scientifically provable activity of one's brain. So this sort of dualism between mind and brain. What was really helpful, and I've 
capture that in the most basic terms. What was really helpful, though, and this, again, thanks to uh, one of our dear colleagues at the university, Jonathan Lear, professor of psychology, he said, well, actually, Charlie, you know, there's a great line early on where Hillary is being interviewed for a job, and they're debating the what is the hard problem, and she's saying, well, the, the brain is actually more like a computer that minds losing. And so Jonathan Lear's proposal is the hard problem for Hillary is that she minds losing her child and that the journey of the play is how does she overcome this minding of losing, giving up one's birth child. And that was so illuminating and helpful for us to understand that that might be the, a guidepost of the principal emotional journey that the play goes on and that all of the science, even the hard problem of both science and philosophy and psychology, all of those things are Hillary struggling to figure out why does she mind losing her child. It goes to goodness, altruism, egoism, and many other topics in the play. Is there another quote that you might have from your conversations with Stoppard about the hard problem that you could share with us and our listeners? Here's one. We were asking him about the transition uh, at the end of the play because there's two scenes that are very close to each other, and yet he wanted it not to seem simultaneous. And so he says, It was my idea in London not to have a scene break between these last two scenes, but it's tricky. The stage can't go empty. She needs a costume change, a simple addition of a coat, perhaps. But she can't exit. Continuousness is the aim, but time-lapsed continuousness. <laughs> time-lapsed continuousness. I have to say, I never thought of it that way when I was watching the show, but you, I think, achieved that uh, in spades. <laughs> the, the play moved along in a narrative way that she led us through and that your direction led us through. The set was marvelous and, and contributed to that, of course, but I applaud that. That's a wonderful quote. Thank you. It's a pleasure to read it. One of the other fantastic playwrights of our time, Tony Kushner, is someone that you have worked with closely as well. He has said that uh, Court is developing a spectacular reputation as one of the most important theaters in the country, and that's tied to Charlie. Uh, that's you. His interpretations <laughs> don't compete with the original text, but you also don't want a director who just listens to your ideas and takes dictation from you, and Charlie doesn't. He asks, he listens, he brings a sensitive response, but he is unflappable. Are you? <laughs> Wow, I don't know if I've ever heard... I've heard part of that quote, but I've never heard that entire quote. I, uh, you'll have to give that to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I think that well, goes right in your bio. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the sense of unflappable, I, I've had the extraordinary recent experience, in addition to the close collaboration with Tom Stoppard, to work with the playwright Michael Christopher. His play Man in the Ring opened our season and actually recently just uh, received the uh, Best New Play Award from the American Critics Association. And I learned so much from Michael about the role of a director working together with a playwright. So this sense about being unflappable, to me that word implies a kind of a stubbornness and an entrenchedness. For me, I would translate it more, thank you, Michael, to help me understand, how to get inside the guts of the playwright and try to make the event, to use that word again from Stoppard, or make animate, make live, make the theater event happen, their intention, even if it's not what they thought needed to happen to do that. 
but the only way to get there, it's kind of like dramaturgy. The quality of, I think, our work at Court Theater is defined by the quality of our research and the quality of our thinking before we actually get into creating it. So in the same way, really getting into the gut and soul of the intention of the playwright, and if that's being unflappable, I would agree with Tony. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about the upcoming shows. You have one more show on this season. You're doing Harvey. Yes, indeed. Uh, opens up May 11th. I don't think I've ever seen a production of Harvey on stage. It's not often done any longer. Is that true? Yeah. We had our first rehearsal earlier this week, and the playwright Mary Chase, for your listeners, uh, go and explore her in, in her biography. She's an extraordinary woman who did extraordinary things in a very challenging time in the 1940s. And her play, Harvey, is a kind of a capstone of that of her life, of course. We have the extraordinary actor Tim Kaine playing the old Wood P. Dowd, the role made famous by, of course, Jimmy Stewart in the film, and Devin DeMaio directing. I think coming off of a season that where we did Man in the Ring, the play I mentioned earlier, Sophocles' Electra, Blues for an Alabama Sky, Tom Stoppard's The Hard Problem, I think our audience is now is so ready to have some fun and laughter and joy in the theater, not to say that there wasn't some elsewhere in the yeah. season, but it seems like it's perfectly timed for a spring season. Uh, let's talk about uh, your season for next year, which has just been announced. I'll mention the plays Five Guys Named Mo, The Bell of Amherst, All My Sons, which you are directing, mm-hmm. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, mm-hmm. and The Originalist, which is the, well, it's not a one-hander, it's several characters, but it's the play about Judge Antonin Scalia. Yeah. Is that the arena stage production that you're doing here? Well, it's the original production of The Originalist that Arena Stage initially produced in Washington, D.C., It's now gone around the country at various other theaters, and we were very proud to be able to bring that company and bring that production to Court Theater and to Chicago. It seems incredibly timely and relevant, and most specifically for our friends down at the University of Chicago, where, of course, Antonin Scalia taught at the School of Law for Mm -hmm. many years. For me, the most powerful thing about the play, and I've certainly heard it from some of my more liberal-leaning friends about, why were you doing a play about that man, is it's the play achieves a level of finding common ground from two very powerful different posing points of view that I think is an incredibly important um, idea to support and celebrate in our current political culture. Well, whatever side of the aisle you sit on, there's no denying that Scalia had a major impact on the procedures in this country for the last three decades, almost. Uh, And uh, his absence has also created some impact um, on on our lives. The Supreme Court has much more to do with how we live our lives on a daily basis than maybe some people give it credit for. Let's talk about the Bell of Amherst for a moment. You're bringing in wonderful director and friend of the show. I had him on several weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Sean Graney is coming on to direct that show. What about the Bell of Amherst says classic for you? How does that fit in with the court mission? The real pivotal part of this was Sean and I have been talking about what would he be doing next. He's done a couple of shows or three shows already at Court Theater and what was next. So when he said, yeah, but you know, Charlie, one of my most favorite plays is the Bell of Amherst. I said, 
Sean Graney? Bella Vamhurst? You mean that play that Julie Harris made famous in a kind of a Laura Ashley, you know, <laughs> doilies and whatever, a beautiful production, extraordinary mm. piece of writing. And he said, yeah, and you know who would be awesome we could get? You know how Sean talks. If we could get Kate Fry to play uh, Emily Dickinson, that would be great. And so that's exactly what we're doing. I, I think the piece is classic in so many ways, but most especially, it's not simply, yes, it contains biographical information about Emily, but the celebration of her poetry and how an artist finds one voice to express one's experience therefore putting Sean and Kate together. And, and Kate was very funny. She said, you know, I assume if, you got, if Charlie, you're producing it and Sean Graney's directing it, we're not going to be doing a Laura Ashley <laughs> version of the play. I said, yeah, I think that's a, probably a pretty safe bet. I bet. So that's a pretty yeah. given, yeah. <laughs> so I think audiences are going to have a lot of just a great fun and a, and a real revelation about who Emily Dickinson is and what an indomitable spirit that she was through Kate's portrayal in Sean's production. I wanted to get your take on something as a longtime artistic director, especially here in Chicago. Sean Graney's company, The Hypocrites, has, has gone through some shakeup recently, yeah. and they have just announced that they're going to try a different producing model. They're going to put out a couple of play suggestions to their theater goers, their mm -hmm. subscribers and ticket buyers and, and potential ticket buyers, and have them see if they'll commit to one or the other. This is a sort of crowdsourcing in a way. What do you think of this idea? We discussed it a little bit on a past show, and yeah. we thought it was a marvelous idea and works just perfectly for where The Hypocrites is now. Is that something that you'd ever really try? Well, I so admire Sean because he is so hungry and eager for anyone's opinion and thoughts and input into what he's doing. My fear, of course, of crowdsourcing art is that one would be driven by, for lack of a better word, a kind of a populist response or artistically the kind of it's not the right word phrase, but lowest common denominator. My background, my training, the mentors that I revere were singular artists who had singular point of view about the kind of work that they wanted to do and then sought a community in which would support that point of view. And that's certainly the model that I'm most comfortable with. With Sean Graney, though, he has such a singular point of view into him of himself that there's no doubt whatever play this process will have the hypocrites commit to, it will be singularly as only Sean Graney could do it. I believe that's <laughs> probably probably an accurate yeah. description. I'm excited to hear what those are going to be and, and how the potential audience for those really responds to it. I'm going to ask you something personal here, just to maybe get to know you a little bit better. We mentioned uh, Venice as part of a location in The Hard Problem. What's your favorite city in the world <laughs> and why? And uh, a follow-up to that is, what does that say about you as a person and an artist? Gosh. Well, my immediate response, so I won't delay any more with any more contemplation of that question, is Chicago. And I know that sounds completely boosterist-ism and et cetera. But for me personally, what is true is whenever young early career theater artists come and say, you know, what should I do? Where should I go? I say, move to Chicago. 
because this is the place that has an audience, that has a community that supports artists in the early part of their career and in their ongoingness of their career, with the exception of possibly London, but I don't know London that well, and, and it seems to also be coming more and more like New York about money in a way that Chicago isn't. In other words, just about the power and the money of, of what theater might, might be able to fatten the pockets of various producers. And the fact that I've been here now in Chicago for over 20-some years, I, I've raised two kids. They're both off in either graduated from college and or finishing college, and that as a theater artist, I've been able to be so lucky and fortunate to have a community that supported me and my family and to get to do the kind of work. And what the hell, get on the phone with Tom Stoppard and talk about his latest play <laughs> sure. and talk to amazing people at the university about, well, help me understand Tom Stopper's latest play. I know that sounds very, in a very obvious Chicago boosterism kind of way, but I, I, to answer your question, Chicago. That's a fantastic yeah, answer, yeah, yeah. And, and I can understand why. And it's a wonderful place to live, uh, to grow up in, and to work, as you exactly, say, exactly. Uh, especially in the theater arts. There's an ethos here in Chicago that really fosters collaboration and creativity like no other place I've ever been to. Totally. Uh, w- one other sort of personal question for you. If you could have done anything else other than the theater in your career, and mm-hmm. I know you fell in love with it at an early age, but yeah. is there something that you would have liked to have done? Well, and this is defined a lot by my upbringing, I was the third of three sons, and so throughout my early life, I had this constant need to be included. <laughs> by that I mean my two older brothers were always off doing something else, and I just so much wanted to be part of their team and join them. So it's not by accident that now, as a director, I'm both creating teams, but then being included in those teams to do things. So the obvious parallel here would be, what would be a profession that would give me the similar sense of being included in a team, leading a team. I've certainly thought about when my, I used to have a real passion for baseball. My passion has now shifted to basketball since my son uh, Jake has converted me into a Bulls fan. So the idea of being a general manager or a coach of a basketball team could be awesome. But I think more especially... The, the, the Bulls could use a good one. Well, we're, we're going into the playoffs. We'll see what happens. Let's see what happens. Um, but the other thing that's happened later, just in the last 10 years, through my dear friend Harry Davis, who's an extraordinary man, uh, professor at the University of Chicago Booth School, and there is the Harry Davis Leadership Institute within the Booth School. He's brought me into all kinds of different environments, whether it's with Fortune 500 companies or graduate students at Booth School or the executive leadership program at the Booth, where through the skills and practices that I've uh, learned over the years working with actors, I, in parallel with Harry, work on helping people establish and identify their own leadership skills. So this idea of having an opportunity to expand that work, because for me, it's it's what also I love of so much about working with actors, where I get to be part of a process where someone becomes their best and greater and more authentic self uh, through the art that we're making, and the idea that we I could actually, and have had some experience now, actually helping people in the real world, in other words, not just on the stage, but in their actual realization of their own jobs to help them in a similar way has been also thrilling for me. Well, you're a marvelous leader of the court. Obviously, after 23 years, your reputation is 
safe <laughs> by me. Well, I'm wondering when they're going to start carting me out of the door, feet first. <laughs> Who knows? Well, I, I'm sure you'll go kicking and screaming. <laughs> well, I am the luckiest man in show business. That's all I know. <laughs> that is fantastic. Uh, Charlie Newell, it's been a great pleasure to have you come and sit in in the booth with us today. It's a great joy to meet you, and we so enjoyed having you here on the show. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you Thank so you much. very much, yeah. Charlie. Thank you. Well, Charlie had to get to auditions and callbacks for the upcoming season, so we had to let him go. But I wanted to let our listeners know that you can help support Booth One's mission of presenting the best in lively conversation and amazing guests like Charlie Newell by going to our Donate button on our website. It's quick, it's easy, and uh, more importantly, it's fully tax-deductible. And it'd be so appreciated by the entire Booth One team. You can go to www.booth-one.com. And as is common on all of our episodes, we're going to end today with our Kiss of Death segment. I think Charlie would have liked this. We're going to talk today about Gilbert Baker. Gilbert Baker, a self-described gay Betsy Ross, who in 1978 hand-dyed and stitched together eight strips of vibrantly colored fabric into a rainbow flag. As the gay rights movement spread from San Francisco to New York in the 70s, Mr. Baker was often asked by friends aware of his creative talents to make banners for protests and marches and the like. Before a gay pride parade in 1978 in San Francisco, Harvey Milk, the city supervisor and gay rights leader who was assassinated, sadly, later that year, asked Mr. Baker to create an emblem to represent the movement. Mr. Baker filled uh, dozens of trash cans with dye in the attic of the Gay Community Center in San Francisco, and he pieced together the first flags, unveiling them in the Pride Parade on June 25th, 1978. We stood and we watched and saw the flags, and our faces lit up. It needed no explanation. People knew immediately that it was our flag. The original rainbow banner measured 30 by 60 feet. That's huge. The first flags had eight colors, each stripe carrying its own significance. Pink for sex, red for life, orange for healing, yellow for sun, green for nature, turquoise for magic, blue for peace, and purple for spirit. Uh, Since its introduction, the rainbow flag has become a universal symbol for inclusion and peace and love. After the United States Supreme Court uh, legalized gay marriage in uh, 2015, more than 26 million people on Facebook changed their profile photos to include the flag. The flag itself has changed since then, of course, going to six colors from eight. Pink fabric was too expensive, Mr. Baker said, so it was removed, and turquoise and blue were combined into one color, royal blue. Gilbert Baker was born on June 2nd in 1951 in Chanute, Kansas. His mother was a teacher. His father was a lawyer and a judge. Mr. Baker said he was outgoing growing up, but had always thought of himself as an outcast. Mr. Baker spent a year in college before he was drafted into the Army. He served as a medic, was eventually stationed in San Francisco, where he remained after leaving the Army in 1972. He bought a sewing machine, which he used to make gowns that he wore 
on occasional appearances as a drag queen. Well, those dressmaking skills were how he really ended up making the first flag. I was the guy who could sew, he said. After the 1978 parade, Mr. Baker joined a flag company in San Francisco that supported his idea of mass producing his creation, but uh, he later left for a career in art and design. He was nevertheless always associated with the flag. In recent weeks, he had finished creating 39 nine-color flags, the eight original colors, plus lavender to represent diversity. And that was to commemorate the 39th anniversary of the first rainbow flag. He got up every day and made art. Charlie Beale, a friend who was the art director of the 2008 film Milk, about Mr. Milk, said in an interview, Mr. Baker refused to apply for a trademark for his creation, and he never made any money from the banner. It was a gift to the world, he said, when the first flag went up. He knew at that moment that it was his life's work. Gilbert Baker. Well, like us on Facebook, everyone. Follow us on Twitter. You can email me, as always, at gary at booth-one.com. We would love to hear your questions, comments, and feedback. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski, and uh, thanking once again my very special guest, Mr. Charlie Newell, saying so long and keep listening. Thank you.